This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts, Anthony Appia, teaching philosophy at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Hi, Amy. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University. Hi, Kenji. Great to be here, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about sexual harassment, the necessary lie, and is silent pretending the same as active deceiving? And here we are for our first question. I recently witnessed what I think is sexual harassment at a coffee shop I frequent. An older man, who I assumed to be the owner or manager from past experiences at the shop, came in on a day he was not working and seemed a little drunk. He brought wine with him and encouraged his employees to have a glass. He repeatedly urged a young woman barista who politely refused each time. He also loudly told a story about how he had misheard what she did for a second job, designer, and thought she worked at a diner. He said he wished she worked at a diner because he would come visit her just to see what she wore and that he imagined her wearing torn fishnets and a little skirt. She seemed uncomfortable. No one said anything. I was at a table near enough to hear the exchange, but it would have been awkward for many reasons to step in and say something. This interaction seems like sexual harassment, and I don't think this young woman should have to experience this in the workplace. Should I have spoken up, either to the offender or afterwards to the woman being harassed? Should I email the cafe and report what I saw, either reporting the behavior to someone above the offender or, if he is the owner, alert him that customers saw and disapprove of his behavior? What should one do when witnessing sexual harassment, if that is indeed what I saw? And is it ethical to return to this coffee shop, or should I avoid it to refrain from supporting their unprofessional and potentially hurtful business practices? It seems to me, if I can leap in here, the first question she asks us is whether this is sexual harassment. And I think it's important uh, to answer that question before we go on, even though I think the answer is obvious, in the sense that at some point this guy crossed over a line from just, you know, drunken bad, but bad manners into sexual harassment. And what does that mean? It means that he wasn't just treating her in a way he wouldn't have treated a guy, treating her as a woman in a bad way. But he was doing so in a way that has a kind of history of being culturally supported. So he was, it wasn't just, uh, what she heard wasn't just him. What she heard was a kind of background noise of, uh, of men treating women like this uh, over the centuries and over space and time. And that's, of course, a large part of why it's so bad. It's not just one person doing a bad thing to another person. It's, it's piling on uh, uh, in the name of sexism. And um, so, yes, you got it right. Uh, this is uh, sexual harassment, I think. And and now the question is what you should do about it. Yes, totally agree that uh, it was uh, sexual harassment. And, you know, back in the day when I was in college, you know, the notion would be if you saw something like this, your responsibility was to kind of butt out and it was none of your business. And I think one of the great advances that we've made in the context of sexual assault and harassment is to raise the level of responsibility that we all have as bystanders. Um, and doing some research on this, what I discovered is the so-called Mary Rowe letter, named after the MIT scholar who developed this technique. And the letter has three parts, and part one describes the actions in detailed and objective terms. Part two describes the victim's subjective reactions. 
and part three describes a desired outcome, which is usually just stop doing this. And usually it is the victim of the harassment who writes the harasser. Uh, But in this case, you could either encourage the individual at the cafe to write the letter, or you could simply write the man yourself. I think you could write the man yourself, although that seems to me to be overstepping, having been a waitress for a very long time. Um, I, I find it very easy to imagine the scenario in which the observer scolds the owner. He says he was just kidding and that the waitress, who is, of course, his good pal as well as his employee, was not offended. And the waitress, who would prefer to have a job, says, absolutely right. And they offer you a free latte and hope that you don't bother them again. And I don't see how that's going to help the waitress. I do think it's a good idea for all the reasons that you said in terms of um, to avoid the piling on of sexism and begin to diminish it, to take the opportunity to tell the waitress that you witnessed the exchange and you're on her side. And should she wish to complain or write a letter, you'd certainly support her in this. I think she might appreciate the remark. I think she also might blow you off because, again, she'd like to go on being employed. And I bet you anything, if she's been a waitress for more than 20 minutes, this is not the worst thing that's ever happened. But you will have taken the ethical step of making a serious effort. Um, and I, I think that going directly to her is probably the right way to do it. And I certainly don't think that not going into the coffee shop helps anybody. Yeah, I think we would all agree, uh, Anthony, am I right, that yep. uh, boycotting this, the, the coffee store is not going to help anybody because there's no communication going on. I think that the point that uh, is important here, uh, riffing off of what Anthony said and also what you said, Amy, is that you know, harassment and of this kind is, is effective because it's, the actions are both infinite and infinitesimal. You know, they're, they're kind of microaggressions of everyday life. And so uh, something does need to be done here, in my view, um, but uh, I think we're just disagreeing on what exactly the proper approach should be. My concern about going to the owner directly, first of all, if you haven't asked the waitress and then you go to the owner directly, it's pretty common for the owner, for the harasser, to assume that you are a friend of the waitress because it's often very hard for somebody like that to imagine that you just object to what you saw as opposed to... You know, you are on her side because you're her pal. And I think the consequences for the waitress could be negative. Right. And so I would not go directly to him. I think you're not taking into I think that action would not take into account um, the power dynamic and the fact that the woman might like to have her job. I also think, though, that it's really important. I mean, this, this uh, may be closing the barn door after the horse has left, but responding in real time is a way of distancing yourself, because I think, Amy, you make a really good point that you don't want to get the woman in trouble or have the man assume that you are just um, in cahoots with the woman and her sock puppet in this. So (laughs) reacting in real time, I think, is really uh, a way to effectively say, look, in part, I'm sticking up for this woman, but this is also like a first-person objection that I'm making, that I don't want to be in an environment where people are being sexually harassed around me because, you know, I am a woman or I am a a non-sexist man, right? So uh, this actually is a toxic environment for me as well, and so I'm going to speak up. So, you know, I say this is uh, closing the barn door because obviously this is not an option. Speaking up in real time, this has already happened. So maybe this is just advice for the future. Um, well, 
you know, unfortunately, the future is undoubtedly going to give the letter writer and the waitress plenty of opportunity to practice speaking up in real time. And, you know, maybe it's useful to have had that to have had this experience so that the next time it happens, one doesn't feel as awkward and off balance as one often does facing the possibility of speaking up right then and there. Embarrassment shouldn't stop us doing the right thing. And the right thing is to uh, identify with the person who's been harassed and, and see if there's anything you can do for her. That's the, that's the first right thing. Exactly. And I think that the social discomfort that uh, the letter writer's feeling is uh, part, one of the things that protects harassers, right? And for me, the helpful analogy is uh, thinking about norms around uh, drunk driving. Of If you see somebody uh, getting into a car and they're obviously intoxicated, they can be a stranger, but you still have the responsibility to uh, intervene in some way. And so that's really uncomfortable. It's socially awkward because you don't know this person, uh, but you know, it's something that needs to be done. It would be great if we could make the cultural shift so that this kind of harassment is perceived as analogous to drunk driving. If we can make that happen, we will have, we will have done a great thing. I think we're on to the next letter. I believe my 86-year-old spouse is in the early stages of dementia. He won't see a doctor to get diagnosed. I asked for some advice in a caretaker's forum at alls.org, and a couple of people told me to tell my spouse some lie about why he had to go to the doctor and then have her give him a cognitive test. I think it would be unethical to ever trick somebody into doing something, but then if he is slipping into this disease, he may be doing all he can to protect himself from knowing it. So is it ethical to lie to somebody in order to help him? Name withheld. So I'm going to jump in here. I I think that um, the first thing, which you've probably already done, is to exhaust all your attempts to persuade your husband, uh, given my fairly constant belief in the ethical value of direct conversation. And I would just assume that you've done this, but just in case you haven't, right, you have probably discussed all the reasons he should get tested, uh, despite his fears about what he might find. But uh, I wonder if you've also said, you know, if you don't do it for me, sorry, if you don't do it for you, uh, do it for me, uh, because people often do things for those they love that they won't do on their own behalf. So I just want to make sure that that conversation has occurred. Assuming you have done that, you know, for me, I think you can uh, take the course of uh, taking him to the doctor and having him tested, even if that means some deception on your part. I'm kind of horrified at myself that this is my reaction, because If the ailment didn't affect cognition, I would be absolutely inclined to say that deception is unethical because it infringes on your husband's autonomy. So it's not so much that the deception is wrong here, but the idea is that you'd be taking a decision about his own body away from him through that deception. But I would sharply distinguish the case of Alzheimer's because in Alzheimer's, the organ that's making the judgment is the organ that's potentially impaired. So, in fact, at some point, it may not only be ethically permissible, but ethically required for you to make that decision, because at that point, it's the Alzheimer's, not you, that's deprived him of his autonomy. Yeah, I completely agree with, with those points. I'd, I'd say one thing, which is not an ethical thing, but is a, is a piece of advice, which is <laughs> you're sort of assuming, I think it's important not to assume that you're 
the right you're the, that you're capable of doing the di- the diagnosis here that is one reason he needs to go to the doctor is because you may be wrong uh, something else completely different may be going on there are people who have symptoms like this for reasons i don't know what i don't know anything about what drugs your husband is taking but if he were taking benzo- benzodiazepines he might be this might be the, a, a bad reaction to a drug so um, i think it's really important that your baseline thought which is he needs to see a doctor that's right and so the reason you have the ethical question is because you've made the correct judgment that he does need to see the doctor. I agree with Kenji that there's a there's a worry about uh, the serious worry and it's about infringing on people's autonomy especially the autonomy of someone you love because part of what he's presumably worried about is that if he goes and gets this diagnosis, he'll lose respect in the eyes of all kinds of people. People will start to treat him as if he isn't able to make decisions for himself. So part of what's going on is a fear of loss of control of his life. And so I think in this conversation that I'm sure you've already begun, it would be really helpful to to reassure him that, that, uh, that you understand that problem. You understand why it's scary. Um, but that nevertheless, there are things, there are reasons why um, uh, it's important to go to the doctor. I feel so strongly that it's important for him to go to the doctor for exactly the reason that Anthony brought up, which is that what you may be seeing is a bad mixture of medications, a reaction to a new medication, the symptom of a tumor, symptom of severe anxiety. And since you're not in a position to diagnose him, you have to help him go to the doctor. And my guess is that at 86, there are probably a few other problems that he has, which might <laughs> legitimately need addressing. And so I don't care, frankly, I'm, I guess I should be more concerned about this. I don't care if you emphasize the ingrown toenail as a way of getting him to the doctor who can then continue to um, do some diagnosis and possibly offer some treatment. I know it is very difficult for somebody who is facing um, and aware of some signs of cognitive impairment to hear that you understand and you'll be supportive because the truth is it all feels terrible and frightening and lonely. And if there's any chance that what, um, that the symptoms that he's experiencing uh, can be treated. It just seems very important to get him to the doctor the sooner the better. And I think without lying, you can probably get him to the doctor by emphasizing some other difficulties as well as bringing this up. But it seems to me this is this is really worth getting treatment for, especially on the on the possibility that there is a different diagnosis. Just to underline one point about the autonomy, I agree with what you just said completely, but I just think to underline one of the points about what, the, what his fear is, if you can do this in a way that doesn't involve manipulating him, you won't be, you won't be speaking to the fear he probably has that this is what's beginning once he gets diagnosed. A lot of people running around him manipulating him because they don't trust his judgment. So if you can do it without manipulating him, I think that would help with the problem that he may be having, the fear that he may have. Um, that he's uh, that he's about to be disempowered. Oh, I agree. I think the straightforward approach is absolutely the first one. Um, having gone through this um, more than once in my life with relatives, my experience is that the straightforward approach is not always, but often, not successful. And it's important not to give up at that point and think, oh, there's no way I can help. 
Yeah, and I think importantly, uh, off of what you just said, Amy, you know, I think we would all offer our condolences here. I mean, this is a really difficult uh, thing, and it, it will come to many of us in one guise or another. And in those circumstances, remembering that there are people in the world who understand or are on your side um, may be helpful. I agree. Um, I think we should go on to our next question. I'm preparing to sell a condo in Brooklyn. A friend offered to help me in any way that she could. Grateful, I asked her to attend the open house. I know that she has no intention of buying the condo, but I wanted her there to add the sense among prospective buyers that there is a lot of interest in the property. I'm not asking her to do or say anything provocative or deceptive. Rather, she just take the tour, comment on how nice it is, and leave. My friend balked. She believes I'm asking her to do something dishonest and deceptive. I'm not so sure, since it's part of the marketing strategy. Is it any different than our staging of the apartment with furnishing and decorations that were not there when I lived in it? Where is the line between ethical and unethical marketing? Well, I I appreciate the fact that there's sort of a concern of like, could it be dishonest and deceptive if it's part of the marketing strategy? (laughs) Um, And I think the answer is yes, it certainly could. I don't think there's anything wrong with staging an apartment or a condo or a house. I think, again, it's part of a sort of conventional and cultural understanding that the single white orchid and the complete absence of dog hair is probably not (laughs) how these people live. And we all understand that. And we appreciate it because it helps us see the, the apartment or the condo more clearly or as it could be and less cluttered up by other people and their annoying and omnipresent way of life. I would say, first of all, that a friend who balks at doing this is not the person you want to encourage to come. (laughs) She's made her position clear. She has balked. She is not going to think to herself, how fun to impersonate a potential buyer and without actually lying, walk around the condo making admiring gestures and responses without actually saying I'm a genuine potential buyer. So I don't think I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have somebody do that if you wish to ha- add to the body count in the open house. I do think these things often backfire because sometimes probably less in New York than in other places, but sometimes people actually speak to each other. And you might end up having put your friend, um, the faux buyer, in the position of having to lie when they did not want to and you had not thought that you were asking them to. Um, I think that it's also the case that no one is going to put a bid on your condo, putting all of their faith in the comment of another person, whether it's your friend or a stranger or an actual open houser who hates the place or loves the place. So I don't know that I feel that having a friend show up as a body and walk through making admiring faces is, um, you know, having just said that, I have to take it back. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, that's just, don't do that. Don't do that. Your friend was right. I, I think there, no, Maybe you guys have something no, to I think, say. I think there really is a big difference, actually, in my mind, between... Uh, trying to fool someone about the level of interest there is in the place by whether it's by getting one friend or a great party of friends to traipse <laughs> through. Uh, that, that seems to me trying to fool someone about a fact that they should relevantly and reasonably rely on in making the decision. Staging 
is first of all, as as you say, it's it's a convention that we do this. So nobody's going to be f- no no responsible buyer should be fooled by staging. And if they are, uh, you know, caveat emptor, it's their own fault. But um, uh, and all you're doing after all in staging is uh, the person isn't buying your decoration or your dog. The person is buying the apartment. So all you're doing is uh, making the apartment look a way it could look. Uh, that you think might make it uh, possible for a buyer to feel that they could make it look nice too. I don't see any. I think that not only is that conventional, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. So I don't worry about that. But I do worry about anything. And I think I would say you got a good friend here. She's uh, she's got the right instincts. And if you have any other ethical <laughs> problems, you don't need to ask us. Ask her. <laughs> it also just seems to me that you're you're treating the person as a prop too. So there might be a separate, perhaps more minor issue there of. <laughs> You know, using people as objects as opposed to using objects as objects. So that might be another ground on which we might have qualms about this. Right. So I think what Kenji's saying, and I think is completely right, is that uh, you didn't mention one of the central ethical <laughs> questions that seems to be raised here, which is which is the nature of your relationship with your friend. <sighs> You're right. You're <laughs> right. And the friend was right to balk and probably the letter writer should take her out to coffee and possibly even apologize maybe after the successful sale of the condo. Yes, yes. when there's more money in the pocket for the coffee. Well, that's what I'm saying. A nice lunch, a really nice lunch. And that's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212 212- Five five six seven zero seven zero. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appia and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicist.